morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the traditional and most popular Ask the Experts. And we have Dr. Shriver here in the studio this morning. It's going to be great to, to have him. He's got a lot of information for you, a ton of information. But before we, we start, just the first thing is I want to wish um, uh, the fathers out there a happy Father's Day. Uh, it's really important what you do, how you do it, uh, love for your families, for your children, and how you contribute to this world. So, um, you know, happy Father's Day to, to all of you. Uh, and uh, please enjoy, enjoy it safely. The other thing is we, we have uh, graduation for the residents tomorrow. Uh, 20 of our residents and three of our chief residents will be finishing their work here at Connecticut Children's. And I want to thank them personally for the enormous amount of work. And, and this is a class that, uh, in you know, starting in March of 2020 had to endure COVID uh, for almost their entire residency period. And, and they did it with, with grace and hard work. So for, for each one of you residents uh, and the faculty who helped train them, uh, thank you and congratulations for graduation. And our three chief residents, uh, spectacular. Uh, they, they, Divya Brooke and, and, and Gabby, who have done a tremendous job uh, handling schedules and complications with, you know, COVID, the residents are up with COVID, the students, the faculty, let's, uh, you know, change the models and, and they, they have done it exceptionally well. So, so thank you to, to them. Congratulations to the faculty who uh, received awards this past Tuesday on our faculty award ceremony, uh, specifically to Dr. Doug McGilpin, uh, who received the lifetime contribution by the Comites Award. And then Leon Comites himself was here, and Dr. Kathy Wiley um, uh, gave a presentation about his career, and Doug was here uh, also, and, and share with us the, the importance of being a great mentor and teacher and why we do what we do in an academic institution. Uh, so with that, uh, I, I'm going to pass it on to, to John that has a lot of information, and I'm sure there will be a lot of questions at the end. So John, it's all yours. Thank you, Juan. I was informed by our team here that uh, my first talk for this was uh, in April of 2020. So uh, I don't know about you, but the time frame in the pandemic has been uh, sort of like dog years. Uh, it goes very quickly. Uh, one other thing I would add to Juan's um, introduction is uh, Monday is actually a federal holiday for Juneteenth. And um, my hope is that it sort of becomes embedded in the national fabric as a, as a celebration of freedom uh, for the United States so we don't forget uh, what we need to remember so we can move to better places. So uh, Monday is a federal holiday. Lots to talk about. I wish I could tell you this is done, it's my last talk, and um, I'm going to ride off into the sunset happy. But this is percolating along, and we have things to learn still and some cautions to take. COVID is widespread throughout the United States. This is a map. It's not as bad as it was, but it's everywhere, and it's active, tra actively transmission. And um, we're learning to live with it. Uh, now, that said, this is different than what we've seen before. And I'll look at the, if you look at hospitalizations for the amount of COVID we have, which is a lot, uh, relatively subdued hospitalizations. There are 30,000 people hospitalized, about 3,000 in ICUs. We have excellent capacity right now across the country in most places. And you'll see the peak uh, where we are, this was a few days ago, is so much lower than the peak hospitalizations in the previous surges. So it's everyone's, most everyone's viewpoint that between immunization and so many infections that there's sort of a baseline 
immunity, and that's preventing a, a lot of these hospitalizations. Immunizations work. We also have better ambulatory interventions with Paxlovid and monoclonals. That's helping. Um, and finally, Omicron's probably less virulent, and that's the dominant variant right now. So these are, this is what's factoring in. This is moving to a different kind of um, illness. It is moving to a more endemic state. Now, I can't tell you whether it's going to continue like that, but this is where we are in early, I guess it's early summer, soon to be early summer. Now, where are the hospitalizations? Who's getting hospitalized? As I've mentioned over the last year, it's older people. And 65 and above, that's where the blue arrow is. Those were the majority of the hospitalization are many breakthrough infections for those who are immunized and many of the unimmunized still. And so, you know, that should guide our public health policy. Clearly, if you're older, there's risk and you need to be modifying your behavior. I wear a mask indoors. Um, I don't wear it outdoors. And, you know, we, we practice some caution. So the majority of the new hospitalizations that are occurring and the increases are in the elderly. So this, again, should guide our public health policies moving forward. And you can look at the hospitalization rate in the younger age. Go, the second um, bar is 55, which, you know, not without getting hospitalized, but as you go lower, it's very infrequent now to get hospitalized. So that should guide people's behaviors. Um, this is current hospitalizations across the country. It's much improved, but you can see there are, there are different parts of the country where there are a lot of people in the hospital. Actually, Southern Maine uh, had a fairly big surge um, late spring, uh, parts of Vermont, upstate New York. But um, again, this is manageable right now, and you can see uh, there are parts of the country where very few people are hospitalized at the moment. So I'm moving more toward watching hospitalizations as the bellwether of where we're going with this pandemic and the actual numbers of cases. It's not accurate anyway because of the rapid tests that are not being reported. So I'm paying a little bit less attention to that. Now deaths, um, I wish I could, there's over a million deaths. I, I just boggles the mind. But these are the peaks. And you'll also see where we are with this. We've had a prolonged period of a very low death rate now. And it's not zero. There are 300, 400 people dying um, uh, every few days in the United States from COVID. But it's way under what it used to be. It's subdued. I think it's manageable. And no deaths would be better. But this is a place we need to watch carefully. And if we keep hospitalizations and deaths low, we're moving to a different place with this virus. So let's watch how this happens. But this is, I'm very optimistic. This is a very good a measure of where we are currently um, with this uh, infection. Now, um, if you look at uh, deaths based on who's actually dying, it's very similar to the hospitalizations. It's, it's predominantly elderly. Now, it's gone down enormously, right? It, you can see the death rate was quite high the winter. It's gone down. It's actually lower than it was last summer. Uh, but these that dark bar there represents elderly once again. It's 70, 75 and above. And that's where the deaths are concentrated. So again, that should guide public health advice and policy uh, in this country. Connecticut, we got a lot of COVID. Now, this is just the reported PCR. This is just the reported stuff. But you know, so you know it's worse than this because of all the rapids. There's a lot of COVID circulating in Connecticut right now. But um, and so, you know, use caution. Certainly, if you're 65 and above, you can just assume it's whatever supermarket you walk into, you can assume somebody's positive, and you should use caution. Um, but what's really interesting um, are, is the trend. So the trend's getting better. The test positivity we are measuring is down. It was much higher than that. 
So, you know, we don't know what the rapid tests are showing, but probably we're in the declining stage now. But more importantly, first off, there are very few people hospitalized, a couple hundred, and that's going down. So again, what we're seeing is a lot of transmission, most people not getting seriously ill, and the ones who are, not all, but mostly focused in the elderly, uh, and um, the widespread transmission is not translating to hospitals being filled and a high death rate. So we're moving to an endemic place for this virus. Very interesting. And again, I, I worry there should really be more national talking about who's at risk, this is what we should do, and it's just not there right now. There's, there's really not a, um, you know, billboards up saying, you know, what you should be doing, not doing. And, and again, you don't have to wear a mask if you're 40 years old and healthy and you've been immunized. I think if you're 65 and you've been immunized, probably need to. And, and we could guide people that, and we're not right now. So I, I do have worries about that. And you can see the Connecticut deaths, uh, as with the national side, despite that you saw the tremendous transmission we're having across the state, our death rate is minuscule in Connecticut. So again, this is a different disease right now than it was in January of this year. It is different. And so, I th again, a reflection of very high immunization rates and so many people having been infected and probably Omicron being less virulent. Now, uh, unfortunately, Omicron continues to spin off new variants. Now, I, uh, a month ago, I talked about the South African variants. I'll give you an update on that. So BA4 and 5 are, have different mutations than BA2 and the other ones that we have in the United States right now. They're even more contagious. They're approaching measles in terms of their ability to infect. Uh, however, the South African data suggests that not a lot of people are getting very, very sick from this. So many people in South Africa have been infected already. So you're not getting full protection from previous infection, but it, again, it looks like the, there's modulation of variants. It just doesn't seem as bad as previous waves. Now, unfortunately for the United States, BA4 and 5 are rapidly increasing. So if you look here, um, when I talked to you last month, it was very little. It was all BA2, 12, 1 and BA2, these are the two BA lineages in the United States, but BA4 and 5 are rapidly increasing and are projected to dominate in about three months, four months. So, you know, we have no idea what that's going to do. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I, I don't think it's going to be particularly serious given the way we've managed the other Omicron variants right now in this country immunologically. We seem to be doing all right with this. So. But I don't know, and so we're going to need to watch this very carefully and watch our hospitalization and death rate. Again, the number of cases, I don't know what to do with it anymore. We're not really following it accurately. But, uh, and we're also not, by the way, not doing as much genotyping as we should. So right now, this is what we think is BA4 and 5. That was a June 4th from the CDC, but it's probably more than that. And we're going to need to watch and see if there's surges in some areas or not. Um, and I can't tell you what's going to happen with that. I'm optimistic it will be not much different than the previous Omicron variants. Now, um, there's another vaccine finally approved. We're talking about it for two years. This is the recombinant protein, spike protein that's made in insect cells. It's really more of a standard vaccine. It's not mRNA. It's a standard vaccine. I think it might be more acceptable to uh, many people, uh, but it's taken literally 24 months to finally get to the FDA, uh, it's, it's uh, going to be approved. It's waiting for ACIP approval. The problem is it's based on the spike protein back in the Wuhan days. 
So we really don't know how it's going to do against Omicron. And in fact, most of the data was, was uh, derived uh, from Wuhan, Delta, and previous uh, before Omicron. So I don't know how this, is, this vaccine is going to pan out and whether you'll need more boosters and all of that kind of stuff. But I do think it's good news because it means we'll have a traditional platform we can offer people who perhaps have been skittish about the mRNA um, technology. And this is the data, some of the data from Novavax, the recombinant spike protein vaccine. The efficacy was quite good. It was 90% versus placebo uh, to prevent confirmed symptomatic COVID-19. It's quite good. Um, they had, you know, the typical um, side effects of uh, uh, fever, sore arm, that kind of thing that we're seeing with the mRNA vaccines. But this is pre-Delta and pre-Omicron efficacy. So if it's anything like the mRNA vaccines, you'll assume that the vaccine efficacy is much lower against Omicron, but we don't know. So we'll have to follow this, and, and my bet is this is going to get licensed and will be waived out. And I'm hoping that Novavax will have a booster that includes some of the mutations of spike protein that we see in the Omicron variants. But this is good news, and I, I, within a month, I'll bet, uh, we'll be able to offer um, the population a traditional platform vaccine for COVID. Pediatric deaths. So, you know, there's a lot of swirl. I'll talk about the vaccines in a second. The vaccines have come out. You know, parents get interviewed. It doesn't hurt kids. I'm not going to do it. It hurts kids. I am going to do it. So what are the numbers? So here's the numbers that I, were I was able to sort of pull out. So COVID has killed 202 children six months to four years. 189 kids, 5 to 11, and 443 preteen uh, to 12 to 17 since January 2020. And the CDC classifies it among the top five leading causes of death for children 19 and under. So, uh, you know, there are other infectious diseases that do this sort of death rate where we have vaccines to prevent this. It's not trivial number of relative presumably normal kids who've passed from this disease so the again as we assemble our data to talk to parents about the vaccines that are going to be released next week i, I believe um, we need to have the facts and the data and the facts are a, a fairly significant number of kids have died it's nowhere near the million adults who've died from this i get that but if it's your kid it's pretty relevant. So we need to get facts to our parents, and these are the facts of the deaths in the last 24 months from COVID in children. Now, the vaccines are here. Let me run through them. It's a little confusing because the um, FDA has bundled the two mRNA vaccines together in their approval. They chose to do that. So Pfizer got approved. Remember, it's sitting, it hasn't gone to ACIP yet. The CDC has to approve it, but the, I, I think everyone's assuming that's going to happen next week. Pfizer is a three microgram dose versus the 30 for adults. It's three doses um, from age six months to four years. Remember, it's already licensed for five and above. The first two doses are three weeks apart, and then you get a third dose two months later, because uh, two doses did not give acceptable immunity based on antibody titers. So, you know, that's going to be logistically a little more complicated for practices to do, but that's uh, approved. The data look good. I'm going to run through some of the data. Remember, Pfizer is already available for children five and above in two doses. Moderna has now been approved um, uh, for ages six to 17, 
That's a, a 6 to 12 is 50 micrograms. 12 to 17 is 100 micrograms. It's two doses, about a month apart. And it was going to be, it has been approved, not by the ACIP yet, for six months to six years in a 25 microgram dose given twice a month apart. Now, I want to go through some data. What are these data based on? This actually is not based on protection from hospitalization and death because so few children in the groups ended up being hospitalized, and I think there were no deaths. So what, they're, what they do is they're basing it on antibody titers, neutralizing antibody titers known to be protective in adults to prevent hospitalization and death. It's an extrapolation based on the amount of neutralizing antibody produced in children with this immunization. So it's very important. Also, by the way, there were no cases of myocarditis seen in the study groups, and there was an excellent safety profile. But I'm going to show you some myocarditis data uh, so that we all can speak the same language to our parents. They need to know the information is based on, you know, very safe and very high titers, but, you know, you can't know whether it keeps people out of the hospital because that wasn't actually measured, but we presume it will because the titers are so high. And, and um, here, for example, are some of the Moderna data. They had a nice cartoon, which I, I thought I'd show. This is the data that Moderna presented to the FDA for ages 6 to 11. And you can see that uh, there was 99% serologic response in these children with the 50 microgram dose. Uh, and it correlates very closely to the response seen in adults that we know is protective, keeping you out of the hospital and preventing death. And so that's the extrapolation, and it was quite good, uh, uh, immunogenic in these children. And then you can see the, so the titers are the same as you get in adults that are protective, and you can see the reactions are, are very similar. I mean, uh, systemic is fever and aches, uh, injection site, headache and fatigue, and, and, they, and relative one being the least symptomatic, and, and so it was very similar uh, to the reactions seen in adults. Not, not a lot of change there. And the neutralizing antibodies were actually a little bit better in age 6 to 11 with Moderna uh, than what you got with the adults. So again, Moderna was quite optimistic that this would be highly protective. These are neutralizing antibody titers that we know protect adults from severe disease. So great news and, and very effective um, in inducing immunity in children. So we can look parents and say these, these vaccines will give you very high titers of antibodies in your children. We know those titers are protective, and the side effects in young children are very minimal, similar to what you got when you got the vaccine. Now, what about myocarditis? So these are the data from Pfizer. Remember, we don't have data from the Moderna, which is just getting licensed. It's just not enough people, and it's younger kids. This is what the CDC has found in their surveillance. So there were 635 cases of myocarditis in kids and teens age 5 through 17, out of 54 million doses administered. It's minuscule number of cases out of 54 million, but it's not zero. It's important. We, it is not zero. The risk is very low, but it is not zero. However, the risk was highest in teenage boys 12 to 17 after the second dose, and that's really where most of these were. So there are 46 cases of myocarditis per million second Pfizer doses in those teenage boys. Um, and um, if you actually got, um, and, and 75 case, cases per million on second doses, teenage boys 16 to 17, that seems to be the highest risk age. 
These case rates are much lower than that seen in teenagers who actually got infected with COVID, where the case rate for myocarditis is 50 cases per 100,000. So that's, that's 500 cases per million. It's a lot more than 75 cases per million. So those are the facts. So if you get COVID and you're a teenager, you're more likely to get myocarditis by tenfold than you are if you get vaccinated. So I think those are the kind of discussions we need to have with parents. They need to be aware the native infection is much higher risk. And the CDC summed it up in this, in this slide recently it, that you're two to six times more likely to age 12 to 17 to get heart complications from infection compared to vaccine and seven to eight times more likely if you're 18 to 29. So the vaccines, in a sense, protect against COVID and myocarditis. The rate's much lower if you're immunized. So these are important data. And again, um, very important that we discuss with parents as we move to younger and younger children getting immunized, which where the myocarditis rate is even lower. Now, what is MISI? And I, I, I want to talk a little bit about MISI. And does immunization prevent MISI? Can we say parents, oh, if you get immunized, your child won't get inflammatory disorder. Well, first off, anytime you start going to Venn diagrams, I, I always get a little worried because I'm looking at, at Dr. Salazar here. I, I think when you go into Venn diagrams, you really don't know what's going on with the disease, right? So they have this Venn diagram of COVID-19 and Missy and Kawasaki and different cartoons and, and, and various inflammation um, uh, measures. And the reality is, I don't think we really know what it is yet. And, um, and, and we have not isolated the genetic predisposition. I think we're getting closer. And the overlap with Kawasaki is fascinating, but still we don't fully understand. So just there's a lot going on in MISI right now. It's a whole nother talk, but we still don't understand. What we are, think we see is less MISI with Omicron. And that's fascinating. And, and again, that's a paper that I think will be published at some point soon. But will immunization prevent MISI? And the answer is we don't know. There's one very promising study that just came out. This came out a week ago, risk and phenotype of multi-system inflammatory syndrome in vaccinated and unvaccinated Danish children. Now, this is a little bit before Omicron, but also during Omicron. I want to focus on the fact that if you were vaccinated in the Delta era, this is a vaccinated teenager in Denmark, you are at least 50% less likely to get MISI. This is the risk of MISI per million kids. So the fact of the matter is in this study in Denmark so far, it looks like the vaccine is protective and much lowers the rate of MISI in vaccinated teenagers. Um, there's a, obviously the smaller children, it says NA, because those kids weren't immunized yet. So we don't know what these data are gonna show but this paper, uh, which um, well, was just came out last week, pretty clearly shows that in teenagers, the rate of MISI is very dramatically reduced by immunization. So I'm very optimistic this could be important data. Long haul, uh, the latest data, this is high. I, don't, I actually think this is pre-Omicron, but this is a CDC saying one in five adults end up having some health condition that's related to their previous COVID illness. Now, uh, it was actually an NPR story this morning driving in, and, and um, the new data, there's this paper I didn't include in this talk today, suggesting that it's actually 5% of adults will end up with some related long-haul condition from COVID. It's still a huge, you know, 
it doesn't seem like a lot until you have 50 million people infected. That's a lot of people could end up having chronic disease. So we need to get our arms around this. I mean, I think one of the things you don't want to do is sort of cook along like this for the next three or four years and have millions and millions of people infected and end up having 15 or 20 million people with chronic disease. Uh, I mean, that would not be where we want to be. So we do need to get our arms around this. And clearly, I don't think it's 20%, but the new data suggests 5% post-Omicron. And that's a lot of people, a lot lower than 20%, though. Now, um, this is a very interesting paper. It was a complicated paper. Um, but they want, this is a VA study um, that just came out trying to understand if you're immunized and you have breakthrough infection, can you get long COVID from that? And so I, I think the bottom line, I would say, is that they documented that clearly immunization reduced these uh, drastic hospitalization complications. But immunization mitigated but did not eliminate the likelihood of post-COVID complications and, and long haul. So, um, so the bottom line is it, it maybe it mitigates it, but it didn't eliminate it. It's a large VA study. These were complicated patients, many elderly. And here's one of the data slides. I think I have two data slides. And, um, this is a hazard ratio. This would be um, uh, expected. And you can see that this is the post-acute sequelae of people with break BTI's breakthrough infection and without immunization is here. And you get actually some pretty good prevention of these drastic, you know, uh, where you have infarcts and coagulopathies and things because people aren't getting that sick. But when you start looking at the long-haul things, you know, mental health and metabolic stuff and musculoskeletal and neurologic, this is a very, not such, this is a little bit of mitigation. I mean, you can, it's not a lot. So, you know, it seems the immunization status seems to help, but it doesn't reduce, uh, it doesn't eliminate long-haul. And then this is a similar slide, which is more important. It shows these are the hospitalization-linked complications, which are greatly reduced if you are immunized. So again, it's confirming that. But these green parts are people who were sick with COVID, never ended up in the hospital. And this line shows the baseline of unimmunized people with long haul stuff. And you know, you're, if you get mild illness and you're immunized, you're not really prevented from having these long haul sy symptoms. So um, you know, this is work that's gonna need to be uh, further fleshed out. In summary, we know, that, and this confirms vaccination will prevent these serious in-hospital complications that you see from COVID, but these subtle long-haul uh, fatigue and GI complaints and mental health and fog, immunization and you have a breakthrough infection with COVID doesn't seem to pre prevent that. So again, we have to follow these data. A lot of this is pre-Omicron. We'll see how this pans out moving forward. So if you're immunized, it doesn't mean if you get reinfected that you're not going to get long haul. That's the message we need to tell people. Now, rebound. Another, I mean, I'm getting a call at least once a week now. So oh, I took Paxlovid and my husband's still sick and I'm still sick and, you know, what's going on? We got, five days later, we got sick again. And so, you know, there's not a lot of data following this yet in the Omicron era, but this paper was, just came out. And thank you, Dr. El Shabib, uh, one of our infectious disease colleagues, turned me on to this paper. This is from the Mayo Clinic. They followed about 500 high-risk people who got Paxlovid, and they found that uh, two patients had breakthrough hospitalizations, very low, and four patients, only 0.8 percent, 
uh, had a rebound of symptoms, which were generally mild, at day nine of treatment, and they all resolved and they did not retreat. Now, I will say, again, it's anecdotal, we're getting a lot of calls in about people with rebound, and there is the, the thought that this could be much higher with Omicron. You, you take Paxlovid and a week later you feel sick again. I don't have any data, and I haven't seen any data yet. Following, we need to prospectively follow people on Paxlovid and figure this out because we need to intervene. Do we need longer Paxlovid? Should it be seven days, not five days? You know, I, we, we need to figure this out. So, but early data pre-Omicron suggests that it's very uncommon to have rebound with Paxlovid. So, interesting. Now, of course, the Pfizer CEO came out and said, well, if you have rebound, just take more Paxlovid, right? Because you know, that'd be great for Pfizer. The FDA didn't like that because there's no data. And he actually got a serious rebuke from the FDA saying, you know, you can't, there's no data to say if you take more Paxlovid and you had rebound from Paxlovid that it's going to help. Probably would, but I, I don't know. So what is Paxlovid rebound? And this is the problem. So first off, we don't know if the viral load comes back. So if you have Paxlovid and a week later you get sick again, we need to determine is it viral load that's come back and it's just recrudescence of disease or is it autoimmune? Is it your immune response? a week later that's making you feel like you have serum sickness, we don't know. Would a longer course prevent rebound? We don't know, that's a great study, it should be happening, I'm sure Pfizer's doing it. Um, and is it more common with Omicron than the other variants, which it seems to be anecdotally, we have no idea. So this is really important stuff because Paxlovid's so effective and we don't want to be in a situation where people are shying away from an effective therapy that will keep you out of the hospital and keep you from dying because they're worried that they're going to get sick again in a week after they take it. So very important issue. I don't have an answer. I do know probably shooting from the hip, just saying take more is not the answer that we actually need to have the data to support that statement. Now, um, what's going to be happening in the future? This is a fascinating study. I believe it was in Nature. And where are these variants coming from? You know, the BA4 and 5 in South Africa, the, the, one of the hypotheses is there's a lot of HIV that's untreated. And a lot of people are chronic excretors of, of um, COVID. And the virus we know mutates when it's in your body for long periods of time. So in this study, they followed one person who has chronic COVID. Uh, it's an immunosuppressed person, immunocompromised for weeks. And they genotyped the evolution of this single virus in this single individual. It's fascinating. Uh, many mutations. And in fact, late on, this is day 170 of infection in this person, they began to shoot off. These are all Omicron mutations. 141, one, these are all deletions that you see with Omicron variants. So it's fascinating. It seems like we're driving to the Omicron, uh, and even in one person, drove to the uh, Omicron variant. And so it's possible that future variants are coming out of these single individuals who are chronically infected. And again, there's a strategy to think about here. You'd like these people not to be chronically infected and prevent these mutations. But this is just from one person and their virus mutated over time to being much more like Omicron. It's just fascinating. So. Um, We'll have to keep watch on this and try to understand what the future of COVID is going to bring, but it could be coming out of single individuals. Now, in the future also, there's going to be an Omicron-specific booster. Moderna is already in clinical trials. Uh, they claim, again, it's, this is data by press release. 
I hate that, but it is what it is. But they claim they showed much significantly higher neutralizing antibody titers against Omicron in the Omicron-specific bivalent booster they have. It's an mRNA booster. This would be fantastic news if it's true, and one would anticipate it's in the data are going to be presented to the FDA, and uh, one could anticipate late summer there may be an mRNA booster that's Omicron-specific available. And then I think we'd be moving more towards the annual booster like we do with influenza. Uh, th that would be sort of how we're moving. So <clears throat> this is great news. Let's see what the data show when they do present the data, and let's see what the FDA does. I'm optimistic this could be available late summer, early fall. What's going on in the media? Amazingly, um, in Newsmax, which many of you remember has perhaps been one of the more inaccurate news organizations about COVID, it's a completely factual article about pediatric vaccination. I was stunned. It was factual. Um, it was, you know, fairly supportive of immunizing your children. And so, you know, my head was spinning. So I knew I had to find something else that just wouldn't satisfy. And, and of course I did. I went to InfoWars. And, um, and on InfoWars, I want you to know that um, Anthony Fauci, who has COVID, uh, shows you the biometric tyranny that globalists are unleashing on the planet. And uh, there's a bombshell broadcast of Tony Fauci, who has COVID, uh, showing this and uh, shows you how bad the vaccine is. I mean, I, this article, my head spun. So I had to show it to you and share it with you that there's still out there, unfortunately, drumming up uh, just crazy stuff. Um, and what they don't say is Tony's 81. He's not in the hospital because he was immunized and boosted. And he's getting Paxlovid, which will keep him out of the hospital as well. And isn't this wonderful, which is what we should be saying. We have great tools between immunization and Paxlovid to prevent elderly from dying. But no, it's a globalist conspiracy. I'm not exactly sure what. But I wanted you to see this um, and to recognize there's a lot of misinformation flowing out, unfortunately, still to the public and our parents as well. So um, the good, the bad, I've crossed out ugly again. I just don't think we're ugly anymore with COVID. Um, community infection is widespread in Connecticut, the United States. It's everywhere. If you're high risk, be aware. However, this current wave all across the country and in Connecticut and New England has a much reduced rate of hospitalization and deaths. It's just factual. That's great news. And hospitalization and death is concentrated in high risk in those 65 and above. So that's where we need to focus our energies right now. Authorization of both Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for children down to six months is in process. I think we'll have the vaccines next week. And it's going to be an outstanding, another mechanism for us to reduce morbidity and mortality in children and prevent community spread. So I, I think um, it, it will be great to have those tools available. Early data from Denmark, and I stress it was early. It's pre-Omicron, and we don't have data about smaller kids. It did suggest that pediatric immunization reduced the incidence of MISI. It didn't eliminate it, but greatly reduced it. And that's an optimistic data. Let's see what happens. And an Omicron-specific booster is already in clinical trials and should be available later this summer and early fall. And with that, I'm going to stop, and we'll open it up to questions. Dr. Salazar. We have a, a, a lot of questions <laughs> today, so um, the, the first one is, uh, when do you see an alternative vaccine for those under the age of 18? Alternative vaccine? To, to Pfizer and Moderna, I guess. is. Uh, In terms of Novavax? Yeah. 
Uh, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I don't know the data, whether Novavax has those data. I believe their, the vaccine they're presenting is 18 and above. Um, I will say I, I know they're driving to do it, but I just don't think they have those data yet. They've been very delayed in ramping up um, manufacturing of this, of this vaccine. So I don't know the answer to that at some point, but unfortunately not this summer, I don't think. So here's, a, here's an interesting question. The pediatricians are going to have Pfizer and Moderna available. Can you please give your opinion <laughs> on Pfizer versus Moderna for the younger children, six months to five? Three doses of Pfizer and two doses of Moderna were quite similar in inducing really high neutralizing antibody titers, even against uh, uh, Omicron, that were very similar to the adult titers that we know protects against hospitalizations and deaths and serious illness. So both work. Both seem to have effective ability to generate the appropriate antibody titers to protect. And both of them have similar side effects. It's the mRNA side effects. You get a sore arm, you might have some fever for a day or so, flu-like symptoms, but no different. It's logistics. So again, you know, it's logistics. What's easier for your practice? Moderna's two doses over four weeks. Pfizer is three doses, uh, the first two doses over three weeks, and the next dose two months later. And to me, it's going to fall down to logistics about what's easiest for the clinic or practice. Um, I think ideally you'd like to offer both because parents may have different viewpoints about what they want. The Pfizer, by the way, has uh, less fever induction than Moderna vaccine. The kids had a little more fever. So as a parent, you might say, oh, I want Pfizer. It'd be great to offer both, but I think it's going to go down to the logistics of what's easiest for your clinic to do. And bringing, frankly, bringing a kid back for a third dose of two months is harder than two doses. Now, I will say Moderna has already announced that they believe they will require a booster in several months for the two-dose regimen. So I think in, in, uh, to be transparent, it's likely that both vaccines will be three-dose vaccines, but at the moment, Moderna is just two-dose. So I don't think there's much difference, frankly. Yeah, I think Paul Offit at the, uh, at the FDA meeting was quite vociferous in saying that, you know, the, he didn't choose one, but he said, yeah, two things that you know he said Pfizer should have used a higher dose than three micrograms they thought it was a low, too low we also said you know Moderna probably absolutely needs a third dose to cover for Omicron and so it, this is interesting and um, I think there will be I, I do think that Moderna in several months will say you need a booster dose in children who've gotten two doses so you know I, I think it's six of one half dozen of the other they're very similar yeah. and and uh, I don't really have a preference so parents will look at some of the data that uh, Moderna says their, their, their effectiveness, and, and this is from the combined question, for less than two was 51% effective, two to six, 37% effective. So they'll say, that's not good. A parent will say, what do you say to that, John? The, the effectiveness, they're looking at symptomatic mild COVID. So if the kid got a cold and that was COVID positive, they classified that as a failure. So it's not useful. Uh, again, what I think is most, so I, I get it. And I think it's, I, frankly, it's confusing for parents. What, what I would want to say is the antibodies generated are so high that they're of the level that prevent hospitalization and death in people. We know that. Uh, and that this will be effective in preventing that. And early data suggests it might help against the multi-system inflammatory disorder. So, but you're right, Juan, their effectiveness in preventing any mild COVID clinical infection was between 37 and 50% something. Yeah. 
Um, and so that's, that's just the truth. So it, your parents need to know their kid may get a cold that's COVID positive after immunization. It's possible. The, uh, another question. You stressed that Novavax hasn't taken, was not, the trials were not done with Omicron, they were done with the original variants. Is that not the same for the mRNA vaccines? And the answer is no, they actually have done trials with. Well, uh, yeah, the answer is um, th they've included a lot of Omicron now because they know that higher titers are required, which is why all the booster recommendations came out. I have no doubt that Novavax will do the exact same thing, that this is the initial emergency use authorization and that a booster will be required to get your titers. Remember, your titers have to be higher for the Omicron variant to be protected. So I, I have no doubt they'll require a booster and the titers will come up with Novavax. There's no reason Novavax would not have the same effect in terms of boosting and getting your titers up. So, but the answer is the mRNA vaccines have looked at Omicron to determine that higher titers are required, thus the booster recommendations. So the, there was a question here about the denominator of kids who got COVID at, and I have the, the latest numbers, 13.5 uh, million cases yeah. in the U.S., so that's 17,000 per 100,000. The mortality was 0.32%, much lower than in the adult population. Right. And hospitalizations were, depending on the state, 1.3 to 4.6%. So I think the question is, is you know, the relevance of 200 children who have died. So well, it's more than that's It's about 800, 900. Yeah, and, the, and the less than five. Is right, okay. Yeah. But, I, I mean, to me, that's still one too many child, uh, the children that die from this? Uh, can you compare that to, to current de death rates or prior death rates of measles, varicella? You know, they, that, I think that gives perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a really important question, and, and it's interesting because I would say 10 years ago, our, our expectations were that we would have essentially zero deaths from vaccine-preventable illnesses. No, no child should die from pertussis. No child should die from chickenpox. And by the way, chickenpox, when the vaccine was licensed, had about 200 deaths a year. It wasn't a lot. 200 deaths, many of them group A strep super infections. Uh, and, and I actually lost a couple of kids um, with chickenpox prior to the vaccine. And um, I, I think polio. Um, you know, a lot of kids didn't die, but many were disabled um, for life. So somehow, because of, I think really because we're so numb to a million deaths now, the thought that a thousand kids could die is okay. I mean, I have trouble with that. And so I don't agree with that. I think that we should try as best we can to guarantee that children in the United States don't die from vaccine preventable infections. And so I think one, it's, it's a great point. And again, I would focus on the chickenpox, one of the newer ones where it's just a couple hundred deaths a year. There was a very strong push by parents, by advocacy groups, and by physicians to get that vaccine licensed. And, and so, and it's, I, there's just no chicken pox anymore. We don't see deaths from it. We don't see whooping cough deaths yet. Diphtheria, you know, again, a few hundred cases a year deaths. So I think our perspective needs to focus, tune out, we've had so many elderly die and others die from COVID all over the country. We really don't want to tolerate in my opinion, hundreds of deaths a year from a vaccine-preventable illness. So I, I think it's a very important question, and that's what I would tell parents. Um, and they don't, you know, again, I, I would be very supportive if they want to wait. I get all that. But uh, the death rate's not trivial, and it's as high as some of the other vaccine-preventable illnesses. And, and it worries me because so many millions of children got infected, you know, of what, you know, some of the chronic side effects could, that could be. If 5% of adults are getting long-haul, 
we have no idea what number of children maybe can't play a sport because they had COVID. We don't really understand, but they're not feeling well. You know, there's so many issues. So again, to me, um, it's a great question, Juan, but one in which I feel it's pretty transparent. I don't feel a lot of gray zone there. I, no, I agree yeah. with you. And if you, if you, like you and I, who have rounded in the ICU here in the pediatric ICU, where we've seen severe case of myocarditis that may require transplant, or we severe, severe cases of encephalitis that is devastating uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, the mortality doesn't capture that, but the, the morbidity, um, and if there's something we can do to prevent that, we do it. I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's my take on this, and so I understand. I couldn't agree more. But again, I think it's important that we present those data in a measured fashion. Parents are getting inundated, as you saw. That's why I show you the various online you know, misinformation streams. And it's just important, in my opinion, that we're not strident about this, that we've, we are measured, give information, and supportive uh, as we move forward to try to prevent this disease from killing that number of children annually. Very good. Uh, another question, that you think we'll have a uh, Omicron-specific vaccine for the fall, or is it too late? I think we will. I think, as I mentioned, I believe Moderna already has in clinical trials an a bivalent Omicron-specific booster that's mRNA-based. Uh, it's already in clinical trials. I have no doubt it will be available in the fall. It depends on the FDA, uh, but I'm very optimistic that we'll have that, yes. From Dr. McGilpin, a preschool class special needs, i.e. can't wear a mask, has two students positive with COVID along with the teacher. What would you recommend for this situation? Class size eight to 10 with two to four teachers. Teachers wear a mask. I think you'd follow whatever rules your district and school has for COVID in the classroom and, and it varies. Uh, some schools are testing and allowing the kids who stay negative to keep going to class. Others would exclude them for a number of days. And I, again, I don't know which just uh, what rules your district has. Something needs to be done. I wouldn't do nothing. I mean, I think it's important to figure out and try to prevent the spread to the other high-risk students as much as you can. So, but I, I, wa I want to defer a little bit because each locality has different rules that are based on DPH guidelines. So. That's great. From Julie Schiff, thanks for everything, Dr. Schreiber. Can you please give some details about the two different formulations, Moderna and Pfizer, under the age of five, and advice on how practices can start administering these two vaccines? Do you advise one over the other? Kind of alluded to that already. Well, yeah, again, uh, uh, the Pfizer's 0.3 micrograms, it's tenfold less than the adult dose. Two doses over three weeks with a booster at eight weeks. They say around eight weeks, so if it's nine weeks or ten weeks, probably fine. Moderna, a little simpler, it's two doses, um, and it's the lower dose, it's 25 micrograms uh, uh, a month apart. So um, both of them showed effective effectiveness in creating very high titers that we know are protective in adolescents and adults. I believe Moderna also will require a booster in the coming months, but that's not been part of this initial licensure. From Pat Joyce, do we know if the rate of myocarditis in kids has changed with Omicron? Great question. The data, the surveillance data that I showed you from CDC overlaps some Omicron, but I, it's not Omicron alone. So again, it was over that period. So it includes Delta and Omicron. It's a great question. Anecdotally, there's the feeling that Omicron is less virulent at multiple levels, but I, I haven't seen the data, only Omicron and myocarditis. It's a good question. I've not seen those data. That's an over the one. The big surveillance for Pfizer, 54 million doses, I believe overlap Delta and Omicron. 
from Dr. Ching Lao. Uh, <clears throat> how do the two vaccines compare in the youngest population? What should be our recommendation when parents ask this question, kind of the similar question? I, very, uh, they're very similar. I, I don't think there's any difference um, other than the after two doses with Pfizer, it's not very good. Okay, the titers aren't particularly great. You've got to have that third dose. Two doses of Moderna, the titers were better, but probably we know there's going to be a third dose because they need to be higher for Omicron. So I don't see a lot of differences, honestly, um, uh, uh, between them other than logistics. Initially, it might be easier to give a two-dose regimen over four weeks. From Don Sampson, uh, what are your thoughts about whether a COVID vaccine booster will be recommended in the fall? Yes. I think it will be, and I think it will be similar to this bivalent Omicron-specific um, vaccine. Remember, we have BA4 and 5 rolling out in the United States now. It, it seems that Omicron worldwide is creating more of a permanent niche, that variant. And actually, I'm hopeful it is, because that will make it easier for us to respond annually. If it's an Omicron backbone but with some minor variations, we can respond to it annually, just like influenza. So. The answer, I believe, yes, and I think it will be an Omicron-specific bivalent vaccine that Moderna has. I don't know what Pfizer has cooking. We have two more final questions. Uh, are, we, are you seeing an increase in type 1 diabetes? I've no, I don't know the answer to that. I know there was some anecdotal worry about that in the pre-Omicron waves, um, and I've not seen new data in the Omicron era. Juan, have you seen any new data? I what, what I can tell you from our endocrinologists is that they have never seen this many cases of type 1 diabetes. But the question is, you know, is it Delta and previous? I don't know. Yeah, I don't yes. Know. Yeah, but there is a there is type one diabetes, which is one of the complications associated of COVID. with this. Absolutely. COVID. And by the way, that that's a great point that Juan brought up. We focus on myocarditis, myocarditis. I think if you looked at the numbers of new diabetes in COVID-infected children, and we need to know whether immunization reduces that. That's a really important study because we know native infection with COVID causes diabetes frequently. It can cause diabetes, and it's another reason to get your child immunized. So it's a great point, Juan. It's something un I, I believe is under-advertised by the CDC. I've just not seen a lot of data on that. Uh, last question. What about seeing acutely ill children in our typical outpatient offices instead of the urgent care of parking lots? Yeah, I mean, I think it's reasonable. Um, the providers are immunized and boosted. You're wearing protective gear. You're, you're going to need to see acutely ill children. I will tell you, I, I visited our grandkids two weeks ago, and they were in daycare, and they got URIs, and I got sick within 48 hours. Three COVID tests were negative. I clearly had influenza. Every bone ached in my body, and I had a febrile URI for five days. So there's a lot of RSV. I looked at our, our virus isolation at CCMC. We have flu A, RSV. We have other stuff. So the reality is, I think we need to see those children and care for them and figure out what they have. And as long as you're immunized, boosted, and wearing appropriate protective gear, it's quite reasonable to see those children. Very good, John. We're going to finish there. And I want to thank you for all your efforts, uh, as always. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when we come back. Uh, next month, uh, June, July. Uh, July. July 15th, we'll then. have John back in the middle yeah. of the summer. Hopefully COVID is all gone by then. Let's hope. Yeah, let's, let's hope, hope that, we'll right? cancel that if it yeah, is. We'll have monkeypox uh, at the we'll time. We'll cancel so we it. Can, I, and yeah. I, I, re, I will rethink the good, the bad, and the no longer ugly. I'll, I'll have to come up with another motto sure, shortly. Very good. So. Thank you. And we'll see everyone again on Tuesday for Grand Rounds. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.